Please be seated. Uh, the late actor Michael Landon, uh, best known for his work in a Little House on the Prairie and a Highway to Heaven, uh, died of cancer in 1991 as he was uh, lying uh, about to take his last breath. His uh, loving family members were surrounded around his bedside, expressing compassion and care. And as he was coming very, near the very end, he, he, his son said, Dad, it's time to let go. It's time to move on. And Landon said, uh, you are right. It is time. I love you all. Uh, those were his final words. Uh, there's a lot of last or final words that we have recorded of people uh, throughout history. And yet here we are, coming toward the end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew 26, 27, 28. We have seen Jesus in his suffering and in his agony and journeying to Golgotha, the place of the skull. Uh, his being flogged and scourged by the Romans and nailed to the cross. And there he is in Matthew 27 on the cross. And now we come to his final words recorded in Matthew. Uh, the most significant the most powerful, the most important uh, final words before he takes his final breath. Uh, these are the last words of someone who suffered much because he loves much. And so we pick up on uh, Matthew, at Matthew 27, uh, beginning at verse 45, as Jesus is hanging in agony on the cross. Matthew 27, beginning at verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah, it sounds like Eli. And one of them at, ran, at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly, this was the Son of God. There were also many women there looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Well, of the four gospel writers, Matthew alone records that at the death of Christ, the earth shook and the rocks were split open. Uh, his death caused a quaking of the earth. But it wasn't just the earth that shook, as we've seen. Hearts were shaken open. Souls were shaken open. Uh, like the centurion, those watching 
over Jesus. They witnessed the quake and were told they were filled with a sense of awe. And they made confession, truly this, is, this, this was the Son of God. The earth shook, it says, and it won't be the last time. In the next chapter, chapter 28, at the resurrection, there's going to be another earthquake on Resurrection Sunday. A quaking of the earth. If you've ever been in an earthquake, whether it was a magnitude of 3.5 or something more significant like 8.5, when you feel the ground beneath you begin to shake, or if you're inside a building and you begin to sense the walls around you beginning to shake, it gets your immediate attention. Probably a little fear. And the first thing that you do is you stop whatever it is you were doing. No one begins to feel an earthquake and just kind of simply, calmly continues on with what they're doing. If you look up earthquake safety, they usually tell you to do three things. Drop, cover, and then hold on. I've been in at least three earthquakes, and in all of them, the third rule becomes the first rule really quickly. Hold on. Because you recognize there is something much more powerful with a much greater force than you happening. And that's what you want to do. Just hold on. That's what the crucifixion, that's what the death of Christ communicates. It's something seismic and indeed cosmic that is happening. In fact, the word for earthquake or the quaking of the earth, the earth shook there in the Greek is where we get the English root word for seismic, a seismic magnitude. And there are some massively seismic things recorded in these verses. You have darkness covering the land over these three hours. The earth is shaking. The veil in another location is split open in the temple. Tombs are being opened. Most importantly, the Son of Man, the Messiah, is crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Very seismic things. And yet, they're all events that happened in ancient history. One might ask themselves, well, what, what relevance are these events to me today? What relevance do they have for modern man? Well, these events become very relevant when we ask the question, who caused the death of this man? Who brought about the death of Jesus? Well, Matthew has given a lot of attention to particular characters throughout the end of the Passion Week, all playing a part in the suffering and cross of our Lord. And a reader of Matthew's gospel, as he moves through the narrative, might first point to someone like Judas as the guilty party. This is the one who betrayed Jesus, who delivered him over to uh, the chief priests and the Jewish leaders. Or one might point to Caiaphas, uh, the high priest. He accused Jesus of blasphemy. He conspired with the Romans to put Jesus to death. What about Pontius Pilate? That's an obvious choice. He's the one who delivered Jesus over to be brutally flogged, pressured by the crowds, and then crucified on the cross. Now, we're even reminded of Pilate uh, 
and his hand in Jesus' suffering and death every time we recite the Apostles' Creed. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. And yet only to see the hands of Judas or Caiaphas or Herod or Pilate is to only see from a human level, a horizontal plane. It really misses the most important hands who caused the death of Christ. And those are the hands of the church. Those are the hands of anyone who is a true believer in Jesus Christ. Those are your hands. Those are my hands. As the old spiritual goes, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they nailed him to the tree? Sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble, tremble. Has it caused you to tremble? Has it ever caused you to tremble? Or to shake you to awe and to worship of this one who gave his life for the church? Were you there, not just as a spectator, but as a participant? Recall that in considering the suffering of Christ in his scourging and his flogging last week, the statement was made that Jesus did not only suffer from something, Jesus not only suffered from pain, from the agony of the scourging and the cross, but he suffered for something. He suffered for someone. But now listen to these words from the late Pastor John Stott. Stott said, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, leading us to faith and worship, we have to see the cross as something done by us leading us to repentance. What a paradox. The only ones for whom the cross takes effect and truly benefits in their lives are those who believe it was their actual hands or their hands and their sin that caused his pain. The cross is about sin. That's what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 6, verse 10. For the death Jesus died, he died To sin. It wasn't just Judas or Caiaphas or Pilate or Herod. It was my sin that held him there. I think one of the most powerful and and personal statements on the cause of Christ's death comes from the the Scottish hymn hymn writer Horatius Bonner. It's printed in your bulletin. Words worth meditating upon. He wrote... It was I that shed the sacred blood. I nailed him to the tree. I crucified the Christ of God. I joined the mockery. Of all that shouting multitude, I feel that I am one. And in that din of voices rude, I recognize my own. Around the cross, the throng of people I see, mocking the sufferer's groan, yet still my voice it seems to be, as if I mocked alone. Judas, Caiaphas, Pilate, and we, if you are a Christian, had a hand in his suffering and in his death. 
And yet, isn't it interesting, we don't call our Lord a martyr. We don't call our Lord Jesus a martyr. His life was not merely taken. His life was willingly offered, voluntarily given for the people of God. Remember what Jesus said in John chapter 10. uh, The good shepherd lays down his own life for the sheep. He says, I lay down my life. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. And for those for whom he lays it down, so much changes. I think it is fair to say that there is nothing that has a greater effect on a person's life than how they relate to the cross of Christ. It determines a person's identity. Whether one will be a child of God or an enemy of God. It is the cross that determines that. The cross determines one's life purpose. Whether they are going to live for the kingdom of God as a citizen of God's kingdom or they're going to live for the kingdom of self. The cross determines one's community and social fabric in life. Whether one will be a a member of the household of God and in his family or left as one lost in the world. And it determines one's future, one's destiny. Whether they're going to be destined to life everlasting or to the reality of hell and eternal separation under the judgment of God. The cross determines much. And it accomplished much. But it was not without tremendous pain and suffering and cost. So we're brought back to verse 45 and 46 to consider this cry of the forsaken, this so-called cry of dereliction or abandonment. Verse 45 says, From the sixth hour, that is noon, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour, 3 p.m. As Jesus suffers on the cross, the surrounding setting, and even the time of day, is all significant. It all plays a part. The prophets of old spoke of darkness as a sign of the judgment and anger of God. So it's not just a physical darkness here that covers the land. It is a symbolic darkness. The prophet Joel, in Joel 2 said, for the day of the Lord is coming near. It is a day of darkness and gloom. The prophet Zephaniah in Zephaniah 1.14 said, the great day of the Lord is near. It is a day of wrath and darkness, of ruin and devastation. So the darkness is this ominous, threatening picture of the coming of God's wrath and judgment. That's That's what's circling the cross We could compare the birth story here as we enter the Advent season with that of the crucifixion. Uh, The birth story in Matthew 1 and 2 is accompanied by wise men seeing a light. Light is part of what defines. The light has come into the world. But here at the cross, it is darkness that is defining the setting and the scene. And it's from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. According to Josephus... The ninth hour was the time when the Jews offered a daily sacrifice. 
the very hour that Jesus will take his final breath on earth before his crucifixion, before his death. And then at the ninth hour, Jesus cries out with a loud voice, his final words recorded in Matthew before he breathes his last. He's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Every word in that verse, every word in that cry has great importance and reveals the heart of the good news. This is the only occasion in the whole of Matthew where Matthew has provided Jesus' actual Aramaic speech. As if to say, what he is about to say, what he is saying is so important, I'm going to give you exactly what he said. And it is so important. You could start at the beginning. Um, you could start at the end of that, that cry with the question mark. Isn't it striking that Jesus' final words are not an affirmation, but a question? I think it would be more natural in our minds to expect some kind of affirmation or, or statement like, God is love, or love one another, or persevere to the end. But it's a question. And it's not any kind of question. It's the hardest of questions. It's a why question. Why? We are confronted with many questions throughout life. And many of them have answers. A lot of them are how questions. When? What? Where? Those are the kinds of questions that are answered in libraries or laboratories or encyclopedias or in conversation. But some of the hardest, most perplexing questions are the why questions. Why this illness? Why famine or war? Why this loss? Why? And our Lord Jesus not only teaches us how to deal with the questions of why throughout life... But he is entering into our pain and into our agony, experiencing the why question for us. The cross is vicarious. It is a work done for us. And we are bound up in him. That's why Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. Christ is doing something, bearing something, and he's going somewhere for us, and we are bound up with him. Why? And why me? He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Father, I know you will leave others to themselves who abandon you, but I have been utterly faithful. I'm your only begotten son. I'm without sin Or blemish. Why me? And why you, Father? My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? In Matthew's account, not one of his twelve disciples are present or mentioned at the cross. No male disciples are mentioned at the cross. Most or all Of his immediate family members are absent, father, brothers, sisters. 
It's one thing for those close to Jesus, fearful disciples or frail family members to fail to express support, but, but his own heavenly father. John Calvin noted here, saying this was Christ's chief conflict, harder than any other agony, that in his anguish he was not given relief by his father's aid or favor, but made to feel somehow estranged. Jesus was feeling and experiencing not only the agony of physical pain, but he was bearing something that you and I would never know. The penalty of all our sin, of all the sin of the people of God for all time. Jesus, we know, was quoting from Psalm 22, verse 1. We've heard it read, Psalm 22 is an individual lament where the suffering that is coming from attackers and mockers are coming from those who ought to be feeling sympathy. The psalmist says, as we heard, my God, I cry by day, but you don't answer by night, uh, yet I find no rest. I am a worm and not a man. Scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who seek me mock me. They have pierced my hands and feet. No wonder this psalm is filling the mind of our Lord. It defines his very experience. And yet what a marvelous thing as he cries out. In pain and in agony, it's not a cry of anger or rage. It is a cry, a crying out of prayer. In prayer. It is lament. Lament is not just expressed sorrow. Lament is turning sorrow into a prayer unto the Lord. That's what he is still doing. Offering his heart to his father. My God, my God. Perhaps you picked up on the fact that in Psalm 22, it goes on and ends with a spirit of victory, of vindication, of worship, of rest. It says, all the ends of the earth shall turn to the Lord. Kingship belongs to him. My praise is offered in the great congregation. It shall be told of the Lord that he has done it. And yet was vindication, was victory, was rest, was worship filling the mind of Jesus on the cross? Perhaps. But if he wanted to express that, he could have not only referenced or quoted the end of Psalm 22, but he could have gone right into the first verse of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. But he does not. He utters words of the forsaken. The suffering one who bears the wrath of God for our sin. In John's gospel, John records the last words of Jesus as those words, it is finished. Or it has been accomplished. The the work that the Father had given Jesus to do was completed. There was no more work to do to satisfy his judgment. He completed it. He finished it. No more work. No more penalty. I've read that tradition tells us when the religious leader Buddha 
died. His last words were, strive without ceasing. It seems like so much of religion in the world and much of the world preaches that message. Keep striving to be something. Keep striving to be someone. The temptation to serve at the idol of accomplishment. I need to make something of myself. But what Jesus accomplished once for all is what our Lord desires to define our lives entirely. The cross of Christ opened up a door. It opened up a curtain and access to life with God. I think a verse that captures the heart of the cross of Christ is 1 Peter 3.18. It's worth memorizing. Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was forsaken that you would be forgiven. Acceptable. Acceptable to the Lord. That's what God and Christ were after in the cross. You. Me. That we would have and enjoy fellowship with the Lord. We sing how firm a foundation. What more can he say? What more can he say? What more can he do? That we might enjoy fellowship with him. And look at what happens upon the death of Christ. Verse 51. Behold, look, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. At the cross, things start to happen. In fact, in Matthew here, there are numerous, I think, seven passive verbs, actions that occurred caused by the cross. The curtain was torn. The earth was shaken. The rocks were split open. Bodies were raised. All of these things start to happen at the cross. Bodies were raised. Whether Matthew intends that these are resurrections that happened at Jesus' resurrection, a very moment of this time, or or he's giving us a glimpse, some suggest of what is coming, kind of a coming attraction at the consummation and end of history. It's all communicating, at the least, the effects that Christ's death had. It's cosmic, earth-shaking, life-giving effects. And yet I want us to leave with Verse 51 in our minds. The curtain of the temple was torn in two. Here we're at Golgotha, the cross of our Lord Jesus, but we are transported from there to Jerusalem, into the city, to the temple, into the temple, and in the temple to the holy place, and the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place, where the Ark of the Covenant alone sat. The very divine presence of the Lord and on top of the ark, the mercy seat, where once a year, one man on the day of atonement could enter the high priest. And he would shed blood and sprinkle blood on that mercy seat to atone for the sins of the people of God. And yet it was done repetitively year after year in anticipation for that sacrifice 
that Lamb of God without blemish that would be offered for sin once for all. And here Christ comes. And His own body is offered. And His blood is shed. And now there is this access into the divine presence of God. A a glorious presence opened up for us. There, There is no place that satisfies the soul more than in the very presence of our God. What more can he do? What more can he say for us that we might enter into his presence? And do you enjoy the presence of God? Are you far from his presence? Do you feel far from his presence? Have you wandered? Do you need to return to him again? Listen to these words. Today, the heart of God, it's an open wound of love. He aches over our distance and preoccupation. He mourns that we do not draw near to him. He longs for our presence. And he's inviting you and me to come home, to come home to where we belong, to come home to that for which we were created. His arms are stretched out wide to receive us. His heart is enlarged to take us in. For too long, we've been in a far country, a country of noise, hurry, and crowds, a country of climb and push and shove, a country of frustration and fear and intimidation. And he welcomes us home to peace and joy, to friendship and fellowship and openness, home to intimacy and acceptance. We do not need to be shy. He invites us into the living room of his heart. Let's pray together. O Lord, how we as your people offer our hearts to you with thanksgiving and praise for what you have opened up to us, your very presence. And Lord, how we see the demonstration of your love through the cross of Jesus Christ, his flogging, his agony, his suffering on the cross in our place. And we pray, O Lord, that you would shower your grace upon us, that this would be the place, the home that we find most rest in. That we would seek you in your word and in prayer and with one another, that we would know your divine favor and presence through Christ and by the Holy Spirit. For this we pray with thanks in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.